Chapter 18 of The Old Tobacco Shop This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a recording by Peter Ryan from Melbourne, Australia. The Old Tobacco Shop by William Bowen Chapter 18 The Society for Piratical Research they were in a dark and narrow passageway. As they stood huddled there together, a candle glimmered at the end of the passage, held in a tremulous hand and lighting up the face of a very old woman. She advanced towards the party by the door, and holding her candle high above her head, inspected the strangers with little blinking, watery eyes. She was short and bent. She hobbled as she came forward. Her face was seamed with deep wrinkles, and the hand which held the candle was knotted and gnarled. Wisps of dirty grey hair hung over her eyes. Ah, Mother Ketch, said Captain Lingo, I wager thou did not expect us so soon. What's in the larder? We are famished. Old Mother Ketch looked at her son, the practitioner, and nodded her head at him once or twice, blinking her eyes. Then she fixed her eyes on Aunt Amanda, and seemed to forget everybody else. Well, well, said Captain Lingo impatiently, art going to keep us here all night? Come, woman, speak up directly. What's for supper, eh? Mother Ketch slowly removed her eyes from Aunt Amanda and looked at the captain steadily. There's naught but pigeons and mushrooms, said she. Good, said the captain. Then we will have pigeon pies, one for each and well filled, mind you. Now haste, be off. Mother Ketch turned and hobbled slowly down the passage, and the glimmer of her candle disappeared. Follow me, said Captain Lingo. The six pirates vanished somewhere in the darkness, and the others followed Captain Lingo up a winding stair. At the top was a heavy door, which he unlocked with his key, and locked again on the inside after his guests had passed through. He then led them down a dark passageway, and turned to the right, unlocked a door with his key, and threw it open. They were in a large dining room, on the table of which were numerous candles, which the captain lighted. In one wall was an opening for a dumb waiter for sending up food from the kitchen below. The party seated themselves at the table, and after considerable time, Ketch entered, a napkin on his arm, and, at the same time, the dumb waiter rose from the kitchen, and the meal commenced. Ketch waited on the table. Besides pigeon pies, there were mushrooms, a lettuce salad, hot biscuit, and excellent coffee. Ketch placed the first pigeon pie before the captain, and Aunt Amanda noticed that he examined the top of it carefully as he did so. She observed that he examined the top of each pie carefully before he placed it, until he had put one before herself, after which he put the others about without looking at them. She examined the top of her own pie herself, to see what Ketch could have been looking at. She saw in the centre of it a tiny figure made of very brown dough, and as she looked closer it seemed to have the shape of a tiny key. She glanced at the other pies, and none of them bore any mark of this kind. Everyone set to with good will, and Aunt Amanda opened her pie. She remembered Ketch's caution, and she prodded it secretly with her fork before taking a bite. At the bottom, her fork touched something hard. She immediately began to put the contents of her pie on her plate, and she did so in such a way as to leave the hard object beneath the rest. 
In the course of the meal, she dropped a portion of the pie to the floor and stooped to pick it up. As she did so, she managed to take the hard object from her plate and conceal it in her lap. It was a key. When the meal was over, the captain led his guests forth to their respective bedrooms, each carrying a lighted candle from the table. At the top of the stair was a closed door, which he unlocked with his key, and locked after the others had passed through. Along the passage which ran from this door were doors at intervals in the walls, and these he opened, one after the other, showing one of the guests each time into a bedroom and leaving him there. On the stair, Aunt Amanda had whispered into Toby's ear the words, Don't go to bed. Pass it along. And these words had been passed in a whisper from one to another of the captives. Aunt Amanda, in her own room, now sat herself down to wait. She blew out her candle and sat watching the shaft of moonlight which came through the slit that served for a window. She must have fallen asleep, for she came to herself with a start and found the shaft of moonlight gone. She limped to the door and found it locked. She took from her dress the pigeon pie key and unlocked the door. The passageway outside was silent and dark. She felt her way along the wall to the next door and found it locked. She quietly unlocked it with her key. Toby was sitting within, waiting. He rose without a word and followed her. They tiptoed from door to door, finding each one locked and silently released each of the prisoners. The key fitted every lock on their way downstairs. They reached the ground floor without an accident, and there in the passage which they had first seen, they stopped to listen. They heard the click of a latch at the rear. A door there opened quietly on a crack, and a light shone through. Every heart stopped beating for a moment. The door opened wider, and a lighted candle appeared, and over it the wrinkled face of an old woman. She peered out into the passage, shading the candle with a trembling hand. The party of quaking runaways stood as still as mice and held their breath. The old woman blinked for a moment into the darkness and blew out her candle. All was dark again, and the latch of the door clicked. The runaways lost no time. They crept silently but rapidly to the entrance door. Aunt Amanda unlocked and opened it, and they pressed out hurriedly. They were standing on the grass in a flood of moonlight. Aunt Amanda, whose lameness had been almost forgotten in her excitement, now leaned on Toby, who was holding Freddy's hand, and who led the way to the rim of the forest where the trail lay. There was some difficulty in finding the trail, but they did find it at last, and they filed into the forest. They had not gone more than twenty yards when Toby, who was in advance, saw a great black object directly across their path. He went forward cautiously, in spite of his alarm, and breathed a sigh of joy when he saw what it was. It was a mule, saddled and bridled and tied to a bush. Further on were other mules, all tethered. There were ten in all, of which eight were saddled, and two were laden with packs. "'Blessings on that catch!' whispered Aunt Amanda. In a moment the entire party were mounted. In another moment they were going along the trail at a fast walk. The mules knew the way, and there was now no danger of going astray in the forest. Only where were they to go, after all? If the pirates should catch them, everything would soon be over. If they should manage to elude the pirates, they would still be lost in the wilderness of this unknown island. What was to become of them, not one could tell. The future seemed dark indeed. 
Once or twice they paused to listen for sounds of pursuit, but they heard nothing. Not a sound disturbed the stillness, and the little moonlight which filtered here and there through the trees seemed to make the darkness more intense. They had gone about half a mile and were plodding along in drowsy silence, when suddenly, out of the tall bushes beside the trail, seven dark figures sprang upon them and seized the bridle of their mules. Ah! Oh, cried Toby. We are lost! The pirates! The mules stood stock still. It's no use, said Toby. We can't escape. They are armed and we are not. All right, Captain Lingo, don't strike. We surrender. We'll go back with you. Don't strike. I beg your pardon, said a voice which none of them had ever heard before. Are you pirates? Ain't you pirates yourself? cried Aunt Amanda. What? said the voice. Is there a lady here? In that case, you are probably not pirates. Perhaps we have been too hasty. I beg your pardon. Who are you? said Aunt Amanda. Do you admit that you are not pirates? said the voice. Admit it, said Aunt Amanda. We vow and declare it. The very idea. I'm sorry to hear it, said the voice. We are deeply disappointed. We of course cannot doubt the word of a lady, but we are almost sure we had found them. We have been searching for pirates for a long time and we were advised that they live somewhere near here. We must have missed our way. Could you perhaps direct us? It is a place called High Dudgeon. You bet we could, said Toby. But we won't. We are running away from there, and you'd better run too. Then perhaps you happen to know the whereabouts of a place called Low Dudgeon, where the pirates formerly lived. We do, said Toby. You are about halfway between High Dudgeon and Low Dudgeon and you'd better get out of this neighbourhood as fast as you can. This is very interesting, said the voice. I feel that you will be able to give us some valuable information. If you have no objection, we will walk behind you until we come to a place where there is more light, when we will have a few minutes' conversation on this interesting subject. The seven figures stood aside, and the mules moved onward. The seven figures walked behind. In five minutes... They reached a patch of ground where the moon shone brightly through the trees, and the riders drew in their animals and turned to look at the figures, who now marched sedately up beside them. These figures stood in a row facing the riders, and six of them turned their heads to the right, looking towards the first in the row, who was probably their leader. They were seven tall men, dressed in black frock coats and striped trousers, with pearl-grey spats. But instead of high silk hats, each wore a small black skull-cap, as more convenient, no doubt, for their rough life in the forest. It could be seen that they were no ordinary men. They looked like professors at college. Their faces were thoughtful and even intellectual. Each one wore spectacles. They squinted, as if from too much poring over books by lamplight. The one at the head of the row was fat, with mutton-chop whiskers, and his frock coat was buttoned tight over his round stomach. He spoke in the same voice which they had heard in the dark. I beg your pardon, said he, if you will be so kind as to direct us either to high dudgeon or low dudgeon, we will not fail to gratefully acknowledge. Aha, said one of the others, in a playful tone, a split infinitive, Professor. I beg your pardon, a slight inadvertence. To acknowledge gratefully your kind. There's no time to talk now, said Toby. We are running away from these bloodthirsty cutthroats and if they catch us, we are dead, as sure as you're born. I'll tell you what we will do. We'll all keep on to low dudgeon, and we'll go in there. 
if we can get in, and decide there what we'd better do. It looked like a strong tower, and we would certainly be as safe inside there as out of doors, if the pirate should come along. The professor looked down the line of his companions. What is the sense of the committee on this proposal? said he. Ah, very good. We are agreed. Proceed, my dear sir. One minute, said Aunt Amanda. Excuse my asking, but I should like to know who you are anyway. The professor waved a fat hand towards his companions, and looking at Aunt Amanda said, We belong to the Society of Piratical Research, under the patronage of His Gracious Majesty, the King of this island. You behold before you a committee of that society, the Committee on Doubtful and Fabulous Tales, sometimes called for the sake of brevity, from the initials of its title, the Daft Committee. As third vice-president of the Society of Piratical Research, I have the honour to be chairman of the Daft Committee. The seat of our society is far from here, in the principal city of this kingdom, the famous City of Towers. Blessed as the residence of His Gracious Majesty, the most learned and liberal of princes, our camp, which we made only late this evening, lies at no great distance from this very spot. We did not wish to delay our researches until morning, and so, as third vice-president of the Society for Piratical Research, and chairman of the Daft Committee, I... Much obliged, said Toby. We've no time to listen to any more. We must get on. The Daft Committee, led by the third vice-president, fell in behind the mules, and the whole party moved forward as rapidly as the mules and the committee could walk. Aunt Amanda felt far from easy at the prospect of entering low dudgeon, but she had told Toby something of Ketch's strange words and manner regarding that place, and she was glad to leave the responsibility to him. Their dark and silent progress through the forest continued, and when they had gone what they thought must have been about half a mile, they knew they must be near their destination. Every eye was watchful, and every ear was alert. A grunt from Toby in advance notified the others that they had arrived, and they filed out of the forest into the clearing and saw before them the squat tower of low dudgeon in the moonlight. The same light as before appeared from within, through the upper slits in the side of the tower. As they drew in their mules at the edge of the clearing, the daft committee came up, and the third vice-president spoke in a low voice. I presume, he said, that this is low dudgeon. I have heard of it, but I have never seen it. It was formerly, some hundred years ago, the headquarters of the pirates, but something occurred here. I do not know what, which impelled the pirates to move. They accordingly built themselves a much better residence, known as High Dudgeon, where I understand they now live. I do not believe that Low Dudgeon has been occupied since. Gentlemen, he said, turning to his companions, we are fortunate in having found this interesting place at last, after so much trouble. It is the very spot in which to begin our researches. A murmur of approval arose from the other members of the committee. I don't know whether it's occupied or not, said Aunt Amanda. Ketch told me that no one lives here, and that there's thirteen of them, and he seemed to be afraid of the place, and there's a light up there. I don't understand it. Gentlemen, said the third vice-president, is it the sense of the committee that we begin our researches in low dudgeon? Every member of the daft committee murmured his assent. If we go into the forest, said Toby, we may be caught. If we go in here, we are safe for a while anyway, and we can decide there what we had better do. 
Maybe these gentlemen can send for help. Anyway, let's get in there if we can. The riders dismounted from their mules and tied them to trees. In another moment, the whole party were standing before the door of the tower. Better knock, said Toby. They knocked and knocked again, and there was no answer. Aunt Amanda, said Toby, try your key. Aunt Amanda tried the key and it fitted. She turned it and the lock snapped back. Toby thrust open the door. The company entered and Toby took the key and locked the door behind them. They were in a dark passage near the foot of a winding stair. We'd better go up where the light is, said Toby in a whisper. They went cautiously and noiselessly up the stair to the landing. There they found themselves in a hall and at a little distance down the hall they saw a dim light shining under a closed door. There it is, said Toby. Come on. With the same breathless caution, they tiptoed to the door. It had no lock, and Toby turned the knob and slowly pushed it open. Ah! said Toby in a frightened gasp and started back. The others crowded at his back and pushed him forward. The third vice president of the Society for Piratical Research brushed past him into the room, and the other six members followed him. A party of fugitives moved slowly in after them. In the middle of a room was a large table. In the centre of this table stood some twenty wax tapers in silver candlesticks, burning brightly. And seated around the table were thirteen men. Not one of these men moved as the party came into the room. Not a limb nor muscle stirred. The third vice-president coughed aloud. Still, none of the men moved so much as a finger. The whole party came forward to the table and stood close behind the thirteen men and examined them. They were dead. They were sitting in all positions. Food was before them, as if they were in the midst of a meal. Some were leaning across the table, as if in conversation. Some were in the act of cutting meat on their plates. Some were in the act of putting forks to their mouths. Every face was ghastly white, and every eye was fixed in a vacant stare. See, said Toby in a whisper, pointing to their backs. From the back of each was sticking the handle of a knife the blade of which was buried in the flesh to the hilt. Aunt Amanda sank on Toby's shoulder for a moment, but she soon recovered. Freddy grasped Toby's hand. Look, said Toby, they must be pirates. Each head was bound with a bright-coloured kerchief, and as the horrified company examined the dead men closer, it was seen that they all wore knee-breeches. A long dagger was sticking upright in the table, just under the candles. Pinned by this dagger to the table was a large sheet of white paper, and there was evidently writing on it. The third vice-president had apparently little fear of the thirteen dead men. He went directly to the table, and reaching across between two of the stiff figures, drew the dagger from the table, and took from the dagger's point the sheet of paper. He adjusted his spectacles, turned his back to the candle so as to obtain a good light on the paper, and read from it aloud. Thus, Captain Lingo, serve all traitors. For a moment, there was silence. Then Aunt Amanda spoke sharply. Wicked villain, said she. Thirteen of his men dead at once by his own hand. No wonder the six that are left are afraid of him. No wonder they don't like this place. Ah, oh, the wicked scoundrel. If I had him here, I declare I would. She paused suddenly and listened. There was a stealthy creaking on the stairs. It grew more distinct, then it stopped, and there was silence. The thirteen in their chairs made no motion whatever, 
but the living turned with one accord towards the open doorway of the room. They waited with bated breath. In another moment, Captain Lingo himself was standing in the doorway, a pistol in his right hand and a knife in his left. Without a word, he advanced into the room, and behind him came his six men, shrinking obviously away from the sight of their thirteen murdered friends. As Captain Lingo came to a stand before his recent prisoners, his eyes blazed, and with his right thumb he cocked his pistol. Each of his men held a pistol in his right hand and a cutlass in his left, and each cocked his pistol with his thumb. The third vice-president of the Society for Piratical Research, who seemed in no wise disconcerted, stepped forward and addressed the pirate. Captain Lingo, I presume? Aye, be quick. I must finish this business quickly. My committee and myself have long been anxious, sir, in the interest of science, to make your acquaintance. I rejoice at this opportunity. Ah, oh, indeed, said Captain Lingo dryly. Yes, sir, I assure you I am delighted. I believe I have the pleasure of speaking to a subject of King James the Second. Aye, aye, said Lingo, eyeing him suspiciously. What then? Then the records of our society are vindicated. They go back, my dear sir, some two hundred years, and they contain, from various sources, an unbroken account of Captain Lingo and his exploits from the time of James II to the present. But the sources of our information were not always reliable. Some doubts were thrown upon our records by jealous persons outside the society, and as it is the special business of the Committee of Doubtful and Fabulous Tales to look into such matters, the committee is here before you, at the present moment, in the interest of truth. No member of our society has ever seen Captain Lingo, and the jealous persons I have mentioned pretend that no such person has ever existed. The chief mission of our committee is to vindicate our records by the sight of Captain Lingo himself. Thanks to you, sir, that has now been done. Our next mission is to determine for our society this most important question. Are you alive or dead? At this, the captain's brows came together in a terrible frown. The scar across his cheek and chin turned very white and he glared under his eyebrows dangerously at the complacent third vice-president. His lips parted, showing his white teeth clenched together. He started to speak through his clenched teeth, and levelled his pistol straight at the third vice-president's breast. But at that moment, a cry from the churchwarden startled everybody. Bless my soul! Why didn't I ever think of this before? These men ain't real persons at all. How could they be, after two hundred years? They're no better than wicked spirits. That's what they are, wicked spirits. Why didn't we think of that before? Ah, my fine friends, I've got a little medicine here for you. Ha ha! He drew forth from his back pocket a little perfume bottle and waved it over his head. Hurrah! he cried. Hurrah for the odour of sanctity! And with these words, the church warden uncorked the bottle and sprinkled a few drops of his perfume on the floor directly at the feet of Captain Lingo. A sharp odour instantly filled the air, so sharp that it brought tears to the eyes of everyone. Captain Lingo and his men stepped quickly backwards, but it was too late. A look of pained surprise crept over their faces and remained fixed there. Their feet stood rooted to the floor, and the hands which held the cutlasses and pistols stiffened and became rigid. Not one of them could move an eyelash. Their outlines began to waver. Their faces began to be dim and vague as if covered with close white veils, 
from their outsides inward they slowly faded melted dissolved nothing remained of any of them but a wraith a vapour a puff of smoke remotely in the shape of a human being and then that also vanished nothing remained the place where they had been was empty all eyes turned to the table where the thirteen murdered pirates had been sitting they were gone their chairs were vacant the church warden calmly put the stopper in his bottle and restored it to his pocket humph he said nothing like odour of sanctity never knew it to fail no harm to human persons but no wicked spirit has ever lived can stand against it and a blessed good thing the bottle didn't break as we came down the waterfall no perfumery in this world like odour of sanctity end of chapter eighteen this is a recording by peter ryan from melbourne australia